This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hi, it's Vanessa from the Fighting Stigma Show on Free FM. Are you a Waikato local? Do you have an idea for a radio show? Do you want to try your hand at being a content creator on Free FM? If so, check out our website on freefm.org.nz or find Free FM on Facebook and get in touch. Hello and thanks for tuning in today. As far as Tibetan Buddhism is concerned, the main activity of our life should be the training of our mind. Now you may ask what that means. Why do we need to train the mind and what do we train the mind in? The answer is, of course, that we want happiness and we don't want suffering. But knowing this and striving for happiness, we continually seem to land up in various states of dissatisfaction and our happiness often seem so short-lived while our suffering seem to shower down upon us like a drenching rain. All this is due to the mind. We think often that our troubles come from outside, from other people and bad circumstances. But those we think of as troublemakers may be seen as adventurers to others and what are bad circumstances to us are welcome challenges to others. Thus, it is not the outside that brings dissatisfaction and suffering, but the way that we perceive and react. For example, a story quoted in John White's book, A Practical Guide to Death and Dying, tells how the monastery of a Zen master and the surrounding countryside were threatened by the savage destructiveness of a barbaric warlord and his soldiers. Everyone in the vicinity fled except the Zen master. White writes, When the warlord heard that the old monk had not left, he was infuriated and came to confront the master. With drawn sword he said to the old man, Why haven't you fled? Don't you know I can run you through with my sword without batting an eye? And the Zen master calmly replied, Yes, but don't you know that I can be run through with your sword without batting an eye? It is reported that the warlord turned and left, humbled by the Zen master's serenity in the face of death. And why is it that everyone in the countryside, presumably, including the other monks from the monastery, ran away, but the old monk did not? What was the difference? It is only that the old monk had trained his mind to the point where he could look anything, even death in the eye, and not flinch. He would not be perturbed. Everyone else had not trained their mind to that extent, so they were still subject to fear. The Zens would probably take exception to my saying that what they undergo is mind training. They certainly do not train their minds in the same way as the Tibetans with their highly structured conceptual system. But in a way, the Zens also engage in activities that radically change mental perceptions and habits. And in this, they could be said to be training the mind, albeit unconventionally, to depart from its normal state, a state which we have seen is imbued with so much dissatisfaction and suffering. In any case, in these programs we are following one of the texts the Tibetans rely on in the mind training tradition, the text called Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun by Namkar Pel. In true Buddhist form, it is divided into sections and subsections and sub-subsections and lists which can become confusing, especially if you don't have the text in front of you to refer to. But nevertheless, we have come to a section titled Instructions Concerning the Five Precepts That Are the Factors of Mind Training. And these instructions themselves 
come in five points. Transforming adverse circumstances into the path, the integrated practice of a single lifetime, the measure of having trained the mind, the commitments of mind training, and the precepts of mind training. We've gone through how to transform adverse circumstances into the path and have, over the last few programs, been looking at the integrated practice of a single lifetime. This is explained by the instruction, Train in the Five Powers, referring to the power of intention, the power of the white seed, the power of remorse, the power of prayer, and the power of acquaintance. We have also covered the power of intention and the power of the white seed, and are in the grip of the power of remorse, which Namkapal explains as giving up such disturbing emotions as the misconception of the self, the self-centered attitude it gives rise to, and the inclination to neglect others by means of regret. Last time, while examining this, we came across a teaching by Tsogni Rinpoche that went into how the misconception of the self is formed. In that teaching, he identified four egos in the building of an I, the mere ego, the reified ego, the self-cherishing ego, and the social ego. We will continue with his teaching, but before we do that, let's set our motivation as we usually do for this program. And as we are dealing here with bodhicitta, the intention to attain enlightenment for the sake of all beings, let's make that our motivation. We cannot have a greater, more extensive motivation than this because the focus is the benefit of countless living beings. But anyway, whether you want to use this as your motivation or not, at the very least, think of your own ongoing well-being and peace. Thank you. Now returning to Tsogni Rinpoche and the four egos, the first, the mere ego, is the foundation of all the rest. He says it only has the merest taste of a perceiver perceiving something. The slight duality is registered because we have a human body and the physical senses themselves have an ability to register touch, sight, taste, sound and sensation as conventional perceptions. At that time, there's no naming of these sense-based experiences as happening to a me. It's just in the nature of being alive as a human. Along with this ego comes what he calls a human program that runs our experience as a human being. This mere ego, he says, is undisturbed by the development we go through. He says that during our first two years, our mere perception of reality begins to freeze into two experiences, one inner or in here and the other outer or out there. He says, through family life, general acculturation, ongoing language acquisition and education, we become increasingly separated from the world around us, forgetting the truth of indivisibility that remains known to the uncomplicated mere ego. We've become reified or realified by a more fixated solid ego that obscures the experience of the mereness. This happens to everyone and with its formation, an external world also forms. And so, everyday misperception, the illusion of reality, begins. The second ego, the reified ego, is not personal. The reference point is a solid eye, but it doesn't relate with much emotion or self-story. Nevertheless, it has and absorbs emotional experiences, 
and makes various identifications, all of which create an increasingly strong sense of self, which leads to the self-cherishing ego. Tsogni Rinpoche says, As the self-cherishing ego begins to emerge around two and a half years of age, it becomes more self-interested and continues to develop over the next several years alongside the reified or fixated ego. Self-cherishing ego is keenly aware of being a me, a me that's tender, excitable and easily hurt. The impact of people and events during these early years is experienced emotionally as well as conceptually. This impact is registered in the physical and subtle body and this shapes the personality. Rinpoche says that the emotional impact of people and events is useful for us to make our way through the world we find ourselves in. He compares it to the cellular memory that forms if we are burnt, say on our hand. For some time afterwards, whenever we come near a fire, we might feel a burning sensation on the spot that was burnt before, even though the fire is not touching it. It's like that with emotional imprints in the subtle body, says Rinpoche. It's through the evolving self-cherishing ego that people re-experience those early emotional imprints. He has found that these experiences play an enormous role in people's lives, usually as traumas or wounds that shapes the self-cherishing ego with quite a lot of neediness. The Eastern cultures don't take these emotional experiences so seriously. He says, either way, the imprints of these experiences remain in the subtle body, but for Westerners, it seems they create powerful emotional tangles of self-doubt, positive self-images, and a a desire to have a perfect, flawless ego. Because they reside in the subtle body, these imprints go on to inform relationships throughout life, becoming the background for the evolution of the social ego. This fourth ego, the social ego, Rinpoche says is built on the sense of solidity of the reified ego, together with the neediness of the self-cherishing ego. The social ego strives for acceptance and approval, he says. Actually, it's more like trying to avoid disapproval and disappointment in oneself through attachment to the outcome of actions that are thought to be reflections on the social ego itself. If we think we can derive a sense of well-being from a successful social ego, we're making a big mistake, because the social ego is very unstable, unpredictable and impermanent, not a good foundation for well-being. It is like building a house on quicksand. Nor is a self-cherishing ego a good foundation for a truly healthy human being capable of unconditional love. In fact, neither the self-cherishing ego nor the social ego leads to opening the heart of compassion. However, by understanding the four ego states, we are in a position to deconstruct our ego-clinging experiences and strong emotional reactions through practice. We shouldn't think that these four ego states are kind of fixed and independent, Rinpoche says. They behave more like verbs than nouns. They're an active, conditioned flux, impermanent but recognizable as relative experience, he says. And through our relative experiences, we can and do engage in a multitude of activities, including Dharma practice. But everything he has said up to now points to the revelation that there is no solid, independent self. And that raises the question, who exactly is doing things like practicing the Dharma? According to Rinpoche, it is the mere eye, the subtlest experience 
of self that begins at birth. He says, although we can experience the mere I, it's not an independent, autonomous, permanent entity. It is neither virtuous nor non-virtuous and isn't affected by afflictive emotions. Mere I is the knower who knows preconceptually through simple, direct awareness of phenomenal experience. If the perceptions of mere I could be sustained at all times, the whole of phenomena would be perceived as mere illusion or a mere dream. But we do not sustain our usually very occasional mere perceptions. The solid reality we have created through the reified and social egos prevents us from doing so. This perceived reality blocks awareness of the mereness of everything, including the mereness of ourselves, says Rinpoche. So we don't perceive ourselves as mere I. In general, we strive to maintain the illusion that we're entities that really exist, solid as nouns, nouns with very complicated egos and complex lives. At birth, our conditioning starts. From the words, it's a boy or it's a girl, we're told what to believe and what not to believe. As time goes by, this ego comes to believe it really has its own existence. But Rinpoche says, our reification is nothing more than a conditioned misperception that makes everything appear to have its own reality. But this misconception grows very quickly, taking over all our perception, including that of ourselves as a real me. It becomes very difficult to overcome our perception of a solid reality just with the understanding that it's all an illusion. Rinpoche asks how often we say to ourselves, this is a mere dream as we go through our day. When we're angry or happy, do we think this, he asks? No. When we experience suffering, we don't think, ah, suffering is showing me the effects of this samsaric impermanent existence. Instead, it's more like, oh, how dreadful, this will last forever, I'm finished now. Without missing a beat, people think this because the perception of the reified I has become automatic. He goes on to say that when we analyze the actual nature of things, we can see that nothing has independent existence. But that is not a realization. It remains something that just rattles around in our head. It is not as if we truly experience and understand the nature of reality. So, like physicists who know intellectually and mathematically how things exist, but go home from work and beat their wives, our reified eye still informs our everyday experience. Even though we know that nothing exists independently, we still act as though everything does. Why does it work this way? asks Rinpoche. And answers, because conditioned perception automatically takes precedence over intellectual understanding. We don't react according to theory, but according to our conditioning, which is the accumulated experience that's been heavily influenced by habitual reification. By rendering everything solid with its own inherent nature, Reified fixation of all phenomena is the basis of our samsaric experience. The reified I becomes a self-centered, self-cherishing ego by the time we are four years old. This ego tries to engage the world on its own terms. Rinpoche says, it not only knows that it exists, but it also knows it exists as a me with a lot of mine. It's the center of the universe and will venture forth full of naive curiosity and self-importance. But it's not stable. 
This I is very easily upset in its interactions with the world, and from a Buddhist perspective, this is how we become isolated, self-centered beings, clinging to me, cherishing ourselves, protecting ourselves from the perceived slights of others. This third eye takes a lot of maintenance, says Rinpoche. Slowly but consistently, this is how we come to live, with the third eye's original operating system embedded deeply in the subtle body, running the show. We usually can't place our finger on what makes us so uneasy, but we tend to take it personally. We think we're inferior, weak, shameful, but none of our experience is personal, it's just how things work out. As Rinpoche says, it's the nature of all impermanent compounded things, including the me itself. He continues, Over time, the third eye's internal self-importance becomes well established and perception narrows and shuts down even more. Impermanence and suffering are now a personal insult. The self-cherishing eye deserves to be happy, happy, happy with no impermanence, no suffering. Of course, this is difficult to maintain because the nature of life is not like that. But we look for something we can do to make ourselves happy. We create an identity based on some perceived feedback from our environment and that hardens into a social ego that we see as permanent and that we cling to. Rinpoche says we want to see ourselves and have others see us in a certain way. So we hang on with hope and fear, maintaining the social eye no matter what. Now that is suffering. The trouble with our social eye is that we need others to continually feed it, to bolster its image of itself. But who wants to spend a lot of their time paying attention to someone else's agenda when they have their own life and social eye to attend to? Mostly the social eye is disappointed and doesn't get the adoration as it craves. So then it tries even harder to make others pay attention. Rinpoche says that maintaining the social eye is harder work and more stressful than even maintaining the self-cherishing eye. And most of the time we're in social eye mode, worrying about the past, planning the future, wondering how we're appearing to those around us, polishing our ego even when we're alone. And there... There's so much suffering. But Rinpoche has a remedy for all this stress. He says, if we want to stop social eyes obsessing, the first thing to do is to find our inner clock, our inner timing, because everybody has a different inner speed. With such complicated lives, we rush through a fixed schedule each day. Pushing so hard causes stress that kicks in our adrenaline and then our mind does everything according to the adrenaline speedometer. When we live through the social eye, moving at adrenaline speeds a real problem, because the adrenaline speedometer only has a fast setting, so we become speedy. Social eye, speediness, adrenaline, stress and anxiety are all in the lung family. So we need to go inside our brain, or wherever it's tight, slow down and give it love. Talk to the speediness, the adrenaline and the stress, saying, Honey, it's okay, we can slow down. We don't need to rush. The world isn't ending. Move more slowly. Think more slowly. It's fine to do that. Rinpoche continues, Of course, some people are naturally speedy, 
So it's okay for them to do things a little faster, to think a little faster. That's their speed. If somebody's inner speed slower, that's his or her speed. We must know our own speed limit. If our speed ca capacity is 35 and we go 50, eventually it'll make something go wrong in our body. We become exhausted and unhappy, but still we're caught in an empty, speedy, adrenaline-driven, anxiety-ridden social eye. Now I'm not saying that we should permanently delete the social eye, but we have to learn to take care of the speediness, or it'll eat up our joy, our love and our openness. When we overuse our resources, they're gone, and the tigli, that's the little seeds of energy, dry up. We have no juice and become like a dry vegetable. There's much that can be done to remedy this, so all we have to do is to do it. Bringing lung down and applying the four mindfulnesses will take care of both speediness and a social eye in overdrive. If we take care of the speediness, joy will happen. Unconditional love and joy. Then, based on that love and joy, the world is much brighter, less clouded. Our hearts will open and we'll have some fearlessness. Our worldly work will be more enjoyable. And if we do Dharma work, it'll be more effective. But we don't have to go to extremes. I'm really scared of extremists because they distort wise teachings. They hear some aspects of the social eye are not so good. So the self-cherishing eye jumps to the other side. Oh no, I don't want anything to do with social eye. I won't be that way, not me. Or they feel fed up with the social eye and run to the Himalayas. That's also not so healthy. When we sit down and look at ourselves with this understanding of the egos, we can see there's also space, not just the egos. There's really so much openness, so much room. If we don't understand openness, impermanence and emptiness, everything is experienced through the construct of the four egos, which generally feels like one big solid ego. That's why we need to break through the reified eye, the self-cherishing eye and the social eye to reach the experiences of the mere ego. It doesn't mean we'll then see things differently than we did before, just by the mere realization that things are not real, says Rinpoche. It doesn't mean glass melts or everything shimmers and turns to light or anything like that. Even when we understand the true, true nature of things, our senses function and our consciousnesses are still influenced by our karmic path. So we continue to perceive as we did before. But everything will be perceived more and more like the stars reflected on the surface of water. When the mind rests, we're allowing the eyes, the ears and so forth to do their own job, which is to see, to hear and so on. In short, we only have to eliminate the distorted perception that things have true and intrinsic nature. By doing this, over time we stop activating the reified, self-cherishing and social ego's patterns, and this brings experience into accord with what has been understood intellectually through investigation. Honestly, all that has to happen now is to learn mere reified, mere self-centered, and most of all, mere social eye. That's all we really need to do. So that is Tsogni Rinpoche's teaching on how to address what Nabkapal calls the misconception of the self, the self-centered attitude that comes with it, and all the disturbing emotions that follow on. 
the great nun Pema Chodron indicates that to free ourselves from our ego games, we have to stop living in our comfort zone. On the website www.lionsroar.com, in an article titled To Know Yourself is to Forget Yourself, she writes, The journey of awakening happens just at the place where we can't get comfortable. Opening to discomfort is the basis of transmuting our so-called negative feelings. We somehow want to get rid of our uncomfortable feelings, either by justifying them or by squelching them. But it turns out that this is like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. According to the teachings of Vajrayana or Tantric Buddhism, our wisdom and our confusion are so interwoven that it doesn't work to just throw things out. By trying to get rid of negativity, by trying to eradicate it, by putting it into a column labelled bad, we're throwing away our wisdom as well, because everything in us is creative energy, particularly our strong emotions. They're filled with life force. There's nothing wrong with negativity per se. The problem is that we never see it, we never honour it, we never look into its heart. We don't taste our negativity, smell it, get to know it. Instead, we're always trying to get rid of it by punching somebody in the face, by slandering someone, by punishing ourselves, or by repressing our feelings. In between repression and acting out, however, there is something wise and profound and timeless. If we just try to get rid of negative feelings, we don't realize that those feelings are our wisdom. The transmutation comes from the willingness to hold our seat with a feeling, to let the words go, to let the justification go. We don't have to have a resolution. We can live with a dissonant note. We don't have to play the next key to end the tune. Curiously enough, this journey of transmutation is one of tremendous joy. We usually seek joy in the wrong places, by trying to avoid feeling whole parts of the human condition. We seek happiness by believing that whole parts of what it is to be human are unacceptable. We feel that something has to change in ourselves. However, unconditional joy comes about through some kind of intelligence in which we allow ourselves to see clearly what we do with great honesty, combined with a tremendous kindness and gentleness. This combination of honesty or clear seeing and kindness is the essence of Maitri, unconditional friendship with ourselves. This is a process of continually stepping into unknown territory. You become willing to step into the unknown territory of your own being. Then you realize that this particular adventure is not only taking you into your own being, it's also taking you out into the whole universe. You can only go into the unknown when you have made friends with yourself. You can only step into those areas out there by beginning to explore and have curiosity about this unknown in here, in yourself. Dogen Zenji said, To know yourself is to forget yourself. We might think that knowing ourselves is a very egocentric thing, but by beginning to look so clearly and so honestly at ourselves, at our emotions, at our thoughts, at who we really are, we begin to dissolve the walls that separate us from others. Somehow all of those walls, these ways of feeling, separated from everything else and everyone else, are made up of opinions. They're made up of dogma. They're made up of prejudice. These walls come from our fear of knowing parts of ourselves. And with that we have to stop. 
We'll continue with Pema Chodron next time. Thank you very much for joining the program today and please dedicate any positive potential from our discussion to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. Have a wonderful week and goodbye. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.